Welcome to Breast Cancer Update, an audio review journal for oncology nurses. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For many years now, our education group in Miami has been conducting national surveys of medical oncologists to determine how treatment decisions are being made in clinical practice. For this issue of our series, we review our most recent study, this time of 150 randomly selected U.S.-based medical oncologists and 51 U.S.-based clinical investigators specializing in breast cancer. These physicians were presented with dozens of case scenarios and related survey questions about management of breast cancer in the adjuvant and metastatic settings. For our program, I interviewed two clinical investigators, Dr. Robert Carlson and Dr. Cliff Huddis, who assisted us in designing this study. Our goal was to review some of the key findings from the survey, which can also be accessed at PatternsOfCare.com. To begin, Dr. Carlson discussed our findings in management of metastatic disease, beginning with endocrine therapy, and one of the most surprising and really disturbing findings of the study, namely that about a quarter of the researchers and more than a third of the docs in practice stated that when they use an LHRH agonist in a premenopausal woman to induce ovarian suppression, they choose depots that are given every three months as opposed to the monthly formulation as used by the rest of the physicians as per FDA approval. This strategy, of course, is also used to treat men for prostate cancer, and there a Q3-month formulation is often used. However, Dr. Carlson began by commenting on why monthly administration of these agents in women is more prudent. The data is pretty clear that when we utilize the LHRH agonists on an every three-monthly basis, that there is breakthrough estrogen production by the ovary. The data is very convincing that monthly LHRH agonist treatment does adequately and continually suppress estrogen production. But the every three-monthly formulations don't do that. They suppress ovarian function well for a month or two, but then there is a breakthrough. This is once again one of those situations where the ovary is stronger than the testicle. In the treatment of prostate cancer, the three-monthly injections do appear to adequately suppress androgen production in the testicle, but not estrogen production in the ovary. And I guess where this gets particularly important is if the patient is also being treated with an aromatase inhibitor. This is a strategy. I'd like you to update us on your work looking at this of doing ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor, but if you're not going to adequately suppress the ovaries, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a major problem. The target for the aromatase inhibitors may actually be the intratumoral aromatase enzyme, and so it may not be fully necessary to suppress estrogen production in the ovary. But until we know that better, the target that we can measure easily is circulating estrogen. And if we use an aromatase inhibitor in a premenopausal woman with functioning ovaries, we're simply not going to adequately suppress estrogen production. So I do agree that if you're going to use an aromatase inhibitor in a woman who is functionally premenopausal, you've got to be certain to adequately suppress ovarian function. Now, that is a strategy that is being used right now in clinical practice, but it's also being studied. Can you update your trial looking at that strategy? Well, we have an abstract that has been submitted for ASCO 2007, updating our experience. The trial has accrued to all the patients. We have 32 women who are treated in a valuable And the short version is that the most recent update confirms our earlier preliminary data that was presented at San Antonio and does show about a 70 to 75% clinical benefit rate in premenopausal women with hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer. 
the duration of response is actually quite good. We have one woman who is actually now five plus years on treatment and has a durable, complete response. And what specifically is the treatment? We're using Gisarolin on a monthly basis. 22 days after the initial injection with Gisarolin, we're adding an astrazole on a daily basis. And then we just continue that indefinitely, Gisarolin monthly and astrazole daily. And I know that you've looked at the degree of ovarian suppression with this regimen. What have you seen? We measured estradiol levels at baseline at one month, at three months, and at six months. And in selective patients, but not as specified by protocol, we did follow up estradiol levels subsequently. We see very rapid and near-complete ovarian estrogen production suppression at one month. It's maintained at three months, and it was maintained in all patients at six months except for one. We had one patient who did have breakthrough estrogen production at six months, but subsequent monitoring confirmed that the levels were later suppressed adequately. Now, as the king of the breast cancer evidence base and the head of the NCCN Breast Cancer Committee, do you address the issue of one month versus every three-month LHRG agonists? We don't specify for any of the hormonal therapies dose or schedule of delivery. And I think that in terms of practice patterns, this is probably the use of the LHRH agonist monthly versus every three monthly is probably the only place where there is substantial variation in dose and schedule. I guess the one other place where there might be would be the question of loading versus not with fulvestrant. But we don't address that specifically in our guideline. This would appear to be a little bit disturbing that so many people are using a regimen that really they shouldn't be using, it seems like. I agree. I think that this is a situation where there is a very substantial educational opportunity. We should be using the LHRHIS in women on a monthly basis. Have you talked about addressing this specific issue in the committee? We haven't. Would you like to to show them this data? (laughs) I mean, the amazing thing is the 24% and the investigators. You know, you look at the list of people that we've got. These are the top people in the country. Well, yeah, it is concerning. It is a real educational opportunity. And it may be that, I guess it was two or three years ago, the panel started specifying the dose and schedule of cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens that should be utilized. And this may be an example where that may be important in the hormonal therapies as well. Okay, we'll do our thing and try to get the message out through this piece, and maybe you all take a shot at it too. I think it would be helpful. I agree. Can you talk a little bit about in what situations ovarian suppression is used in breast cancer in general and why it's so important to make sure the ovaries are suppressed adequately? Well, the use of ovarian suppression in the treatment of breast cancer is used, obviously, in premenopausal women. And it's typically utilized or considered in women who have hormone receptor positive, so that would be estrogen and or progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. Those are the criteria that are typically predict for having hormone responsive breast cancer. And there are two very different situations where ovarian suppression is then used. One would be in the adjuvant setting, so just after initial local treatment, chemotherapy if it's going to be used. And ovarian suppression is sometimes utilized in that setting as an endocrine therapy especially in women who have high-risk disease. So that would be women with multiple positive axillary lymph nodes. The other situation where ovarian suppression is utilized is in women with metastatic breast cancer. And in that context, again, women would be selected for having hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. And the ovarian suppression is used to simply deprive the tumor of estrogen, and that's frequently associated with the response. 
Another situation in a metastatic setting where we'll often use ovarian suppression is in combination with some other hormonal maneuver, tamoxifen. And there is evidence that from a meta-analysis that in women who have ovarian suppression, if you add tamoxifen to that ovarian suppression, the rates of response are increased, the time to progression is increased, and overall survival is also prolonged. In the premenopausal woman, we will also sometimes do ovarian suppression in order to make available to that woman the hormonal therapies that are effective in normally postmenopausal women. So those would be the aromatase inhibitors, anastrozole, letrozole, exemestane, but also the estrogen receptor down regulator, fulvestrant. So those would be the major situations where we would consider ovarian suppression. Now, one of the issues here is how you administer the ovarian suppression. And there are one-month formulations and three-month formulations. Can you talk about what we know about how effective these are and what your thoughts are about what we saw in the survey of medical oncologists in that regard? Well, there are two of the agents that are called the LHRH agonists that are used for ovarian suppression widely in the United States, gaserolin and luprolide. Both gaserolin and luprolide are available in a monthly formulation, so a treatment that's given about every four weeks. And then there's also a formulation that has a longer duration of action that is marketed as a three-monthly injection. If you look carefully at the indications and the data in terms of suppression, The monthly injections appear to fully and adequately suppress estrogen production in the premenopausal ovary. The every three monthly injections do not appear to adequately suppress ovarian function, at least throughout the entire three month time period. They may adequately suppress for the first couple months or two and a half months, but then there in many women is a breakthrough of the ovary toward the tail end of that three month time period. Now, partially responsible for the fact Gaserolin is the only FDA-approved method of ovarian suppression, and if you look carefully at the indications and approvals, it's only the monthly formulation of gaserolin that is FDA-approved for ovarian suppression. The three-monthly formulation of gaserolin is not approved for breast cancer. It is approved for the treatment of prostate cancer. And so if one is going to treat a premenopausal woman, you're really obligated to use the monthly formulations. What are your thoughts about the fact that a significant fraction of not only oncologists in practice, but also clinical investigators specializing in breast cancer, so about a third of oncs in practice and a quarter of the investigators use it every three months? Well, I think that that's a spillover from the experience in prostate cancer where the three-monthly formulations are effective. But, you know, I can only think it's an educational opportunity for us to encourage people to use the monthly formulations in women as opposed to the every three monthly formulations. It has to be simply a knowledge deficit. From the point of view of a nurse administering a three-month depot of an LHRH agonist to a woman with breast cancer, maybe that's something that would be worth bringing up to the physician. I think it would be a great opportunity for the nurse to participate in the optimization of patient care. Let's talk a little bit about the choice of hormonal therapy in a woman who develops metastatic disease. Now, we presented to these physicians a scenario that's not uncommon in that the patient was given anastrozole, the aromatase inhibitor, as the initial adjuvant therapy, but in spite of that, while still on the anastrozole four years later, develops metastatic disease. And we asked them, in general, what hormonal therapy would you utilize at that point And there are three major choices that they brought up, 
fulvestrant, the estrogen receptor downregulator, tamoxifen, or exemestane, the steroidal aromatase inhibitor used uh, less frequently. Can you talk about the choice in this situation, how you approach it, and what you think about the way these physicians responded to this? Sure. Well, breast cancer that is estrogen and or progesterone receptor positive is a classic situation where a sequential use of hormonal therapies often provides benefit. And so you can use one hormonal therapy until the tumor becomes resistant and then move on to another and so forth down the list of hormonal agents. And for the usual woman with a hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, with time you will actually go through the list of four or five commonly used hormonal agents. And so the major issue in this context is really not which of the agents are going to be used, but it's really a question of what is the sequence of their use. And there have been relatively few studies looking at what is the optimal sequence of the hormonal therapies. And so I'm not surprised that we're seeing a divergence of opinion among treating oncologists about which of the hormonal therapies they would use next. I think that any of the available hormonal therapies would be reasonable, with the possible exception that I don't think it would be reasonable to go from anastrozole to letrozole, or from, for instance, tamoxifen to terimiphene or vice versa, because those are situations where I think tamoxifen and terimiphene are equivalent drugs, and astrazole and letrozole are equivalent drugs, both in terms of efficacy. They have the same mechanism of action. They're chemically very, very similar. But outside of that setting, those two settings, I think you could argue effectively for a number of different sequences of hormonal therapies. How do you tend to make the decision? What's your most common choice? The therapies do differ a little bit in terms of toxicity. The tamoxifen, hot flashes, vaginal discharge, a slight increased risk of thrombosis, a slight increased risk of endometrial cancer. The aromatase inhibitors, hot flashes, arthralgias, vaginal dryness, a drop in libido, a loss of calcium from bone, so osteoporosis. Fulvestrant's toxicity profile is very similar to the aromatase inhibitors. So some of it would be what toxicities the woman is most concerned about. Another would be that with fulvestrant, the woman comes in, she gets a monthly injection, and she's done for the month with her therapy. She doesn't have to remember to take a pill on a daily basis. She isn't reminded every time when she gets up to brush her teeth when she takes that pill that she's got metastatic breast cancer. So there are some considerations, I think, of which route of administration the woman would prefer. It's interesting that the most common choice for the dachshund practice is fulvestrant. With the researchers, it seems like it's split between tamoxifen and fulvestrant. And there was just a major clinical research trial, the so-called EFFECT study that was just reported in December at San Antonio that addressed exactly this very common situation, the woman who's developing progressive disease on a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor. Can you talk sort of broadly about what the EFFECT trial looked at and what it found? Sure. So the EFFECT trial was a trial that was performed in women who had progression of disease on anastrozole or letrozole, and the women were then randomized to a treatment with either fulvestrant or exemestane, the steroidal aromatase inhibitor. And the short version of the results are that the rate of response was almost identical, freedom from progression almost identical. There was a slight advantage favoring fulvestrant, perhaps, in the duration of response. So if a woman did experience a response, there might be a slight prolongation of her duration of response. But even that difference was quite modest. But that has been something that's been seen in other studies of fulvestrant. 
It has been seen in other studies. There was a study looking at women who had been treated with tamoxifen, postmenopausal women, and then they were randomized to fulvestrant versus anastrozole. And again, rates of response, time to progression, and overall survival were very, very similar. There was, again, though, a slight prolongation of duration of response that favored the fulvestrant. Another thing that was interesting in that effect trial is that you utilize a cell called loading dose to try to get the blood level up quicker, giving it initially and then after two weeks and two weeks later an increased dose. What are your thoughts about that strategy in a non-protocol setting? What's the rationale for it? Well, there have been pharmacokinetic studies done looking at blood levels of fulvestrant. And what is seen is that if you use the classic 250 milligram injection monthly, it takes several months for the blood levels of fulvestrant to get to optimal levels. If you use a loading strategy, you can get there in about a month. And there have been no you know, randomized comparisons of the loading strategy versus not. But it certainly makes biological sense that a loading strategy would be optimal. There are several different loading strategies that have been used, 500 milligrams on day one, 250 on day 15, and 250 on day 29, and then 250 milligrams on a monthly basis. Others have used 250 every two weeks for three treatments and then converted to the monthly injections. A number of different options available, but it does look like a loading dose gets you to effective blood levels of drug much faster. And we've been tracking this in our patterns of care studies for several years and seen a steady increase in the use of a loading dose. Right now, more than three-quarters of the investigators use a loading dose and about half of the docs. What do you do? I use a loading dose in essentially all of my patients. The one situation in which I may hesitate a little bit is if I get into reimbursement difficulties. The FDA-approved label has the monthly injection. It does not incorporate a loading dose. And so it occasionally is difficult or it requires a negotiation with the insurance company. Okay, I want to segue over while we're talking about therapy of metastatic disease in the patient who has an ER-positive tumor to the patient who has an ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor, and specifically the issue of the tandem data that was presented initially in Europe in the fall and then at San Antonio by John Mackey in December. And we have a case in here that's kind of a tandem-type case So this case is a 60-year-old woman who was diagnosed three years previously with an ERPR HER2-positive, triple-positive breast cancer, and she receives AC followed by tamoxifen, which she's been on now for three years. And this is pre-adjuvant trastuzumab, so she hasn't had any anti-HER2 therapy. So now while on the tamoxifen, She presents with moderately symptomatic bone mets, no other sites of disease on staging. And what we saw with this is that by far the most common choice for this was the combination of endocrine therapy, mostly AIs, but endocrine therapy plus trastuzumab. Two-thirds of the investigators, more than half of the docs in practice, say they would use both about a quarter of the investigators saying they would use endocrine therapy alone. I think that number would have been a lot higher six months or before the tandem data came out. And a similar, a little bit slightly smaller number, again, using endocrine therapy alone from private practice. Can you talk about how you would approach this situation, what the tandem trial showed, and whether that impacted the way you approach these patients? Sure. So the tandem trial was a prospective randomized trial. It looked at anastrozole alone versus anastrozole plus trastuzumab in women with ER-positive HER2 overexpressing metastatic breast cancer. 
And the short version of the results are that the combination of anastrozole plus trastuzumab had higher rates of response and a longer time to progression with no difference in overall survival at the current analysis. So that study is very reminiscent, and the results are very reminiscent of the single-agent versus combination chemotherapy studies that have been reported. The combination chemotherapy studies generally show higher rates of response, longer time to progression, no difference in overall survival or very small differences in overall survival, and greater toxicity. With the AIs plus strastuzumab, the toxicity experience is really quite modest with the combination therapy, and so differences in toxicity, I think, are much less of a concern to me in this context than with the cytotoxic agents. But I think without a survival difference, without randomized trials that really look at sequential hormonal therapy followed by trastuzumab or trastuzumab followed by hormonal therapy versus the combination, it's really hard to be dogmatic in terms of which strategy is preferred. In a woman, though, like this, who's at least moderately symptomatic, I think getting a good response with more confidence is important. And this is a woman where I personally, my practice pattern would be typically to use an AI in combination with trastuzumab. And I do that again because the additive toxicity for most women is usually quite minimal. Have you been doing that for a while? I've been doing that for a while. Because I found, I don't think that's that common in investigators. I think maybe the more symptomatic the patient is, perhaps. But my sense was that people were, granted, the toxicity is not worse, but the patient has to come in for the office to an intravenous injection. Some people talked about separating out what was working. I think that before TAN, a lot of people would use endocrine therapy alone. And it's kind of interesting that you see so much of this going on right now. What about chemotherapy how do you approach the same situation if the patient, let's say, was completely asymptomatic? Still use both? Well, I think if the patient is asymptomatic, then the rationale is much less compelling for using combination therapy. And in that situation, I would typically start with a hormonal agent alone and hold the trastuzumab for use down the road, most likely in combination with cytotoxic therapy. You know, another thing I've heard people talk about, we don't see it reflected that much in this survey, but I've heard investigators talk about is the issue of the question of survival advantage and the concept of starting chemotherapy and trastuzumab up front with the thought that we know that it's sort of an interesting kind of logic that there was a survival benefit seen in the chemo plus or minus trastuzumab studies and that, quote, we might lose that opportunity if we wait too far down the line. And here we see only about 10% of people taking that strategy. Although, interestingly, in practice, about 11% of the docs use endocrine therapy, chemotherapy, and trastuzumab altogether. What about chemotherapy? Well, I would tend to delay chemotherapy in this situation. The studies looking at trastuzumab that show a survival benefit are studies that have included primarily hormone-responsive disease only after the application of hormonal therapy. So the woman with an ERPR positive breast cancer who had not received hormonal therapy was excluded from most of those studies. So the survival advantage that was seen, you could argue, was seen despite the fact that the women with hormone-responsive disease had initially been treated with a single-agent hormone or presumably a sequence of single-agent hormones. So I would not use chemotherapy early on, especially in the asymptomatic woman with a hormone-responsive tumor. I think that in this context, the more difficult issue is whether or not the use of single-agent trastuzumab would be reasonable. Without endocrine therapy? Without endocrine therapy. Hmm. 
Now, I would typically, in such a woman, use endocrine therapy first, but Chuck Vogel has data and Melody Coblet have data looking at single-agent trastuzumab with rates of response that are not too bad, and again, associated with really minimal toxicity. I want to ask you about a case that we presented to these doctors of a 60-year-old woman who presents with metastatic breast cancer, and the tumor is triple negative, ERPR, HER2 negative, and the doc has decided that they want to use a taxane. And the question is, which taxane they're going to choose in this first-line setting? And we really see a big heterogeneity in terms of what the choice is, mainly between using nabpaclitaxel versus paclitaxel. So in the researchers, more than half using nab and most of the rest using paclitaxel. But the docs in practice, still using a fair amount of nab, 39%, but also using a lot of docetaxel as first-line therapy, metastatic disease. What's your take on sort of the risk-benefit issues in this situation? Well, there have been randomized trials done, a phase three trial reported by Bogratishar and colleagues looking at paclitaxel versus nab-paclitaxel. And the nab-paclitaxel is associated with an increased rate of response, longer time to progression, so that there are reasons to consider the nab-paclitaxel over paclitaxel. The direct comparisons of nab-paclitaxel versus docetaxel are much less mature. Primarily, they're related to randomized, what we call phase two trials, and so direct comparisons across the arms are done with great caution. But even in those comparisons, the nab-paclitaxel looks like it's somewhat more efficacious. Part of the difficulty here, though, is that the nab-paclitaxel studies are single-agent studies with the use of bevacizumab in combination with paclitaxel. It's not clear how bevacizumab paclitaxel would compare with nab paclitaxel or whether bevacizumab in combination with nab paclitaxel was really superior to nab paclitaxel alone. So the comparisons are difficult. One of the other issues that comes up and that is a huge nursing issue is, of course, the issue of hypersensitivity reactions. Nabpaclitaxel is associated with a very, very low frequency of hypersensitivity infusion reactions, and they're uncommon enough that premedication with antihistamines or dexamethasone is not recommended in combination with nabpaclitaxel. Of course, it is absolutely required with paclitaxel and with docetaxel, so that the infusion duration with nabpaclitaxel is also much shorter than especially with paclitaxel. There are a number of nursing issues, quality of life issues, that would tend overall to favor the use of nabpaclitaxel. No, one of the things that's interesting that we found out in this survey is we asked people about the use of pre-medications, because as you mentioned, one of the potential advantages of NAB is the fact that you don't require the antihistamines and the decadron. And when we asked these docs, do you use pre-medications with the taxanes and different taxanes and different regimens, what we found to our surprise was that 30% of the docs in practice are using decadron when they use nabpaclitaxel. Is that necessary, and what do you do? Well, when I use nabpaclitaxel, I use no routine premedication, And the use of decadron or dexamethasone in combination with nabpaclitaxel is really not required. It's not only not required, it's really, I think, not recommended. All the toxicities associated with decadron are an issue, and the bottom line is it's simply just not necessary. The other thing we asked was how often decadron itself causes significant problems with insomnia, agitation, weight gain, exacerbated diabetes. And these docs do 
state that that is a common source of morbidity. In fact, there have been studies looking at this question, and I think about three-quarters of the patients who received Decadron as part of a pre-medication report significant symptomatology. What's your take on the symptoms that patients can avoid by not having to receive pre-medications? Well, I agree that the symptoms associated with dexamethasone especially are very important. Insomnia, agitation, weight gain or cushionoid changes, very common, as is the exacerbation of underlying diabetes with dexamethasone. So I think that there are some pretty meaningful toxicities that we can avoid if we're able to avoid dexamethasone safely. What about the issue of cost as it relates to choice of taxanes, and specifically the issue of NABPACLOTAX? Well, we asked these doctors if the cost and reimbursement were the same, would you be using paclitaxel at all, or would you be using just nabpaclitaxel? And a significant fraction said if the cost of reimbursement were the same, I wouldn't be using paclitaxel. What are your thoughts about how to sort of cost fits in, and whether it's a cost to the patient or to our society? Well, I think the cost to the patient and society are all very important, and there are some trade-offs here. Uh, of course, if you don't require the premedication, then you save the premedication costs, the infusion times are shorter with nabpaclitaxel, and so the nursing resources and facility resources devoted to the patient may be less, should be less, so there may be some cost savings there. The cost of the drug itself, though, is a big issue, and nabpaclitaxel is substantially more expensive than paclitaxel, and so some of the benefits in terms of decreasing toxicity, decreasing infusion times, and so on for the individual patient will ultimately be societal costs if the pricing structure for nabpaclitaxel and paclitaxel remains the same. To date, the use of nabpaclitaxel has been in the metastatic breast cancer setting. We have insufficient data at this point in time to talk about using nabpaclitaxel in the adjuvant setting. And I think we need to be careful that, you know, paclitaxel and nabpaclitaxel are different drugs. The mechanism of tumor uptake of nabpaclitaxel is very different than the native paclitaxel. And because the mechanism of uptake is different of the two drugs, I don't think that we can freely exchange one drug for another in the clinic. And so I think we need to look at the use of nabpaclitaxel, especially in the adjuvant setting at this point in time, with a great deal of caution. And I would, in general, in the absence of good prospective data, discourage its use in that context. I guess the challenge in these situations, it reminds me a little bit about the use of capecitabine as opposed to 5-FU in colon cancer, which is, you know, you see it having an equivalent effect in metastatic disease. You see that it's safe. And then the question is, do you have to wait the years that it takes to do an adjuvant study to bring it into the adjuvant setting? You know, the kinds of advantages that you just talked about in terms of infusion time, but particularly pre-medications, allergic reaction, and maybe improvement in outcome, it seems like a shame to have to wait these years to be able to use the agent in that situation. It is a shame to have to wait that period of time, but I think we have, you know, little choice. We can talk about bone marrow transplant and high-risk breast cancer and see that sometimes things that looked very straightforward and clear to some people when tested in the randomized trials proved to be quite different. And, you know, we could talk about the analogy of 5-FU versus capecitabine in colorectal cancer. Capecitabine is metabolized to fluorouracil. Nabpaclitaxel is not specifically metabolized to paclitaxel as it takes effect. So I think we have to be a little cautious in using that analogy. 
Let's talk a little bit more about Bevacizumab or Avastin. What we've seen over the last couple of years is a growing use of this agent in metastatic breast cancer. And right now, the majority of both researchers as well as docs in practice have used it in metastatic breast cancer and are frequently using it combined with ataxane, specifically paclitaxel, as first-line therapy. Can you talk a little bit about how the data has evolved looking at that strategy, where we are with that, and what are some of the clinical trials looking at other issues related to bevacizumab? Well, you know, bevacizumab is a anti-vascular endothelial growth factor agent. Its precise mechanism of action as it relates to breast cancer, though, is yet to be clearly defined. We do know from the sequence of clinical trials that if we look at bevacizumab as a single agent in the treatment of breast cancer, it has very little activity. If it's combined with capecitabine as second-line therapy for metastatic disease, it has a modest activity, at least in terms of increasing rates of response, time to progression, no difference in overall survival. Despite that finding and the general sense among the breast cancer community that that was a negative trial, Bevacizumab was moved into the first-line setting where a study was done by ECOG that looked at paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab. And that trial showed substantial prolongation of time to progression, higher rates of response, and some survival advantage to the combination of paclitaxel plus bevacizumab. So that's resulted in a number of different trials. There are two large multi-institutional trials now going on known as Ribbon 1 and Ribbon 2, Ribbon 1 is a trial looking at women who are receiving first-line chemotherapy for metastatic breast cancer, and the oncologist and patient are allowed to choose from a variety of different types of chemotherapy, and then the women are randomized to receive either placebo or bevacizumab in combination. And then Ribbon 2 is a corresponding trial for women who have had one prior chemotherapy regimen for metastatic breast cancer, and they're then randomized. They're given chemotherapy, again, physician and patient choice, and then there's a randomization to either receive it with bevacizumab or with placebo. Maybe I can track this out a little bit in terms of how you approach these patients and how you integrate the taxanes, bevacizumab, and other chemotherapy strategies in metastatic disease. So I'm going to present to you sort of a theoretical scenario that's similar to what we asked the physicians in this survey, which is we have a 60-year-old woman who has a triple negative breast cancer, in other words, ERPR, HER2 negative breast cancer, that was diagnosed a couple years ago, no negative. She receives adjuvant AC chemotherapy without a taxane, and then three years later presents with bone pain and is found to have a number of bone metastases, a number of which are moderately painful, The rest of the workup shows no evidence of metastatic disease. Can you talk a little bit about what the options would be that you might discuss with a patient like this? So in that situation, there would be typically three non-protocol options that I would discuss with the patient. One would be the use of single-agent capecitabine. It's an oral regimen, usually well-tolerated. The second would be the use of single-agent nabpaclitaxel. Just as we've talked about, when I use nabpaclitaxel, I typically use one of the weekly schedules. And the other alternative would be paclitaxel plus bevacizumab uh, would be another option that I would discuss with her. Each of those required have differences in terms of travel time, infusion times, expense. 
and there are some toxicity differences that may be important to the patient. Now, it's interesting that you would use the NAB paclitaxel when you're not using bevacizumab, but when you do use bevacizumab, you'd use paclitaxel. What's behind that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is uncertainty about what the precise mechanism of action of bevacizumab is. Besides reducing circulating levels of the vascular endothelial growth factor, bevacizumab also increases blood vessel permeability, especially the large molecules. And the reason that bevacizumab adds to the effectiveness of paclitaxel may be that the bevacizumab is making the blood vessel more permeable, so that paclitaxel, which is a very large molecule, can simply get out of the bloodstream into the tumor in an expedited fashion. With NAB paclitaxel, the albumin coating around the paclitaxel alters the mechanism of uptake of the drug, and so the drug becomes non-diffusion dependent, non-vascular permeability dependent, if you will. And so if the bevacizumab mechanism of action is vascular permeability, that may have little, if any, effect on the efficacy of the NAB paclitaxel while it would potentially have substantial activity or impact on activity of the paclitaxel. Now, as part of your counseling of a patient like that, what would you say in terms of what she might expect in terms of additional side effects or potential complications of adding in the bevacizumab? So I tell the patient that the most common thing that she's going to notice in terms of addition of the bevacizumab is a bigger bill. It's a very expensive drug. In terms of the toxicities that the patient is likely to note, occasional headache, although a headache is fairly uncommon at the doses of bevacizumab that are used in the treatment of breast cancer. I warn them about the development of high blood pressure, and certainly blood pressure requires monitoring in women who are receiving bevacizumab. I warn them about the development of protein in the urine, and the amount of protein spilled into the urine does need monitoring in women taking bevacizumab. I talk about the concerns about bleeding, especially if they experience an unexpected trauma or require urgent surgery. And I also talk with them about the potential for vascular thrombosis, so blood clots, especially arterial blood clots that can be threatening, but fortunately are pretty unusual. What about quality of life and side effects? The major quality of life impact of the bevacizumab is the infusion and the cost. I think overall, bevacizumab, in terms of what the patient typically experiences, is a pretty easy drug for them. Now, I know every patient is different, but in general, when you present these types of options, what do patients usually lean towards? It varies a lot. I'm continually struck by how different women value different things. A lot of women love being away from us, and those women typically would choose the capecitabine because it's an oral regimen they can do it at home. Other women find a lot of value and reward from interacting with other breast cancer patients, oncology nurses, and so on in the infusion center. And those women may actually prefer a weekly treatment regimen that keeps them in the infusion center for you know a while during the week. It's a wonderful social situation for some but not all patients. So let's assume that this patient decides to receive the bevacizumab and paclitaxel. She has a very good response. Her pain goes away. She's doing very well, relatively few symptoms, and then things start getting worse again. The pain comes back. You know, maybe she's got a couple of new lesions on her chest x-ray or CAT scan of the lung. What would you think about doing at that point? Well, I think there are a number of other active cytotoxic agents besides paclitaxel and you could argue for any one of them. And 
They would include crossover at that point in time to NAB paclitaxel, capecitabine, and anthracycline, so doxorubicin, liposome encapsulated doxorubicin, venerelbine, gemcitabine. There are a whole series of different agents that could be considered. In today's oncology setting, I think that the issue is much more not so much which of the chemotherapy agents is a patient going to receive over the course of her illness. It's really a question of what is the sequence of those agents going to be. So what would your most likely guess be as to what your next therapy would be in that situation? I would probably use capecitabine as my next agent. Now, if the patient had had a good response to the paclitaxel and bevacizumab, would you keep the bevacizumab going and just add in the capecitabine? I would not personally maintain the bevacizumab in that setting, but we really don't have good evidence one way or the other whether the bevacizumab should be continued or should be stopped because it would not be any more effective. So that's going to be a situation where we should expect to see changes in practice patterns. What about the issue of the dose and schedule of capecitabine in this situation? There's been a lot of controversy about whether or not people in North America should have lower doses than people in Europe because of toxicity. There's been discussion about using, instead of the two-week-on, one-week-off, a one-week-on, one-week-off regimen. Where are we in those issues? Well, those are all great issues. And you know, one of the joys of capecitabine is it's an oral regimen, and so patients can take it easily at home. One of the realities of capecitabine is that after a few cycles, pretty much everyone experiences annoying toxicity. And at least if you try to maintain a good dose and schedule, just about everyone after three or four cycles is going to have hand-foot syndrome to some degree. And, you know, any number of different strategies are there to try to minimize that dose, reducing the capecitabine, giving a longer period of time between treatment potentially altering the schedule in dramatic ways, a week on, a week off, a week on, a week off. Any of those strategies do appear to decrease the severity of the hand-foot syndrome, and probably if they were used initially, would decrease the frequency. But which of those strategies is ultimately going to be the best? I just don't think we know. But it is clearly an agent that you have to monitor carefully, and in my experience, you need to make adjustments to dose or schedule very quickly after the patient begins to experience significant toxicity. What about the psychosocial issues involved in managing a woman like this? Doesn't have either of the two markers that we can take advantage of with estrogen receptor, HER2 positivity, triple negative tumor. Can you talk a little bit about the usual kind of emotional reaction to the first diagnosis of metastatic disease and kind of how things evolve as the patients go through first, second, and third line therapy? All in 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the news, of course, that a woman has when she experiences her first recurrence is quite devastating, and we should expect it to be. And it's, you know, I think we also need to realize it's not only devastating to the patient, it's devastating to the healthcare provider as well. I feel like I've left a pound of flesh in the clinic after I have that discussion with the usual patient. And I know that the nursing staff who worked hard in delivering the patient's adjuvant therapy usually and typically have a long-term relationship with a patient, are also devastated by it. I think that there are several things that are important to do when that happens in that setting. One is to be sure that adequate support is provided to the patient, that they have people they can talk to, that they know what the resources are in the community to support them psychologically and socially, that they're given hope, that this is not a situation where there's nothing that can be done or no options available. And to reassure them that, as we do when women approach adjuvant therapy, we reassure them, you can do this. I know you can do this. There have been other people who have done it. 
this is something that we can all work on and struggle with together. I guess one of the things that's kind of hard to explain to a patient in this situation, they've already gone through usually adjuvant therapy, and so they've already endured one huge life stressor. How often does the issue come up of, did I choose the right treatment? Was my initial therapy correct, or should I have gotten more therapy? Does that come up? It does come up. It doesn't come up all the time. I think that, you know, one of the things that I stress with women when they're making their adjuvant chemotherapy decisions initially is that there are different options in front of them. And for the woman at high risk for recurrence of disease where adjuvant therapy is something we're going to really very strongly push, the options are different types of chemotherapy, but that that's truly their options. There isn't a right one definitely or a wrong one. And whatever they choose, they should never second guess it because we'll never know whether or not there was a better choice among the options for them. And in the woman who has low risk for recurrence of disease, you know, whether to take chemotherapy or not, or hormonal therapy or not, again, is a situation where there are different options in front of the woman and not necessarily a right or wrong choice for everybody, a right or wrong choice for that individual woman. So I try to set them up from the very beginning that there are different options, that only time will tell us whether those options were effective or not in controlling their disease. But even if the disease returns, we will not know with any certainty whether or not it was the right or wrong choice. What about as things move along, the decision to stop active anti-tumor therapy, whether it's hospice or continuing under your care, but just not receiving, for example, in this situation, chemotherapy? How do those discussions go? Well, I think those are important discussions, and they're important discussions to have on an ongoing basis. And typically, my own practice pattern would be that in a woman who has substantial organ dysfunction, even in the first-line setting, I will talk to them about the option of palliative care or hospice care as opposed to active therapy. And then in the more typical patient who has you know, minimal organ dysfunction or potentially no symptoms, when I get to the third-line therapy, I typically, in that setting, would include in the options of therapy available to her no active therapy, but supportive therapy. And so by the time we typically really get to the situation where supportive therapy is something that I would really strongly endorse, they've already heard the concept and they've had a discussion of it in small pieces, typically over a period of months or even sometimes a period of years. Let's go back to the nurses and issue of end-of-life discussion. One of the things that I worry a lot about in my clinic when patients are not doing well is not only the patient but the staff, the clinic staff, and that includes me. It includes nurses, nursing assistants, front desk personnel, and so forth. And I think it's really important to remain sensitive to the needs and the stressors in the non-patients that are participating in patient care. And to remember and maintain an attitude that death is not always a failure. And in fact, in the oncology clinic, death, while it's unfortunate, is not usually a failure of the healthcare system. And to remember that death is a part of life, and death is actually what gives life meaning, and that we need to share our losses, we need to be open to our losses, but we need to remember that death is not always a failure. What about burnout in oncology professionals and people working in oncology offices? What do you observe and what do you think helps prevent it? Well, I think burnout in oncology is a very common problem. And 
it's a really unfortunate problem because often the people who burn out are the people who are some of the most effective practitioners. And I think that there are some strategies that have been documented to help avoid burnout, and they are things like you need to realize that you can't do everything, that other people have to be able to step up to the plate and do things for you and for the patient. I think time off and time away is very important. Taking vacations is crucial. And when you go on vacation, you should leave the pager behind. You should not call into the office. You should try as hard as you can to leave your computer behind so you don't check email. To take vacations long enough that you can really relax. You know, taking three-day weekends is not a vacation. There needs to be really time away. And I think we also need to look at ourselves individually and say, what is it that makes me relax? What is it that I enjoy doing? And do those things also on a regular basis as we go through our daily lives, be that exercise, reading, cooking, those sorts of things that allow us to forget what we do all the time at our jobs. What about the sort of upside of being in medical oncology? I'm constantly amazed by how, I mean, even though I know burnout does occur, how, quote, normal so many people are in oncology. To me, they seem like saints a lot of times when I talk to them. How does dealing with these people on a day-in and day-out basis affect you and your staff? It is wonderful how resilient the human spirit is and how strong patients and their families are as they approach a cancer diagnosis. I know that I myself have some concerns about non-oncologists providing the long-term surveillance follow-up of patients with cancer. And the concern I have is not about the quality of the health care. The concern I have is that we need the positive reinforcement that many of our patients do well. I myself schedule my clinic so that I typically see active chemotherapy patients in the mornings. I see the patients on hormonal therapy in the early afternoon, and I try to end my clinic with a handful of patients who I've been following for a long time who are doing well. And I find that at the end of a hard day in clinic, seeing patients who are really, really sick, that I need that handful of patients. And I probably need them more than they need me. But I intentionally try to do that to help maintain my own sanity. That's interesting that you developed this strategy of staggering your appointments. How long have you been doing it? And what gave you the idea to do it? <laughs> Gee, Neil, I've been doing it for years, and I'm not sure how the strategy actually came up. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it helps me. It helps everybody in the clinic. Everybody ends the day typically on a positive note. 